0: Welcome to "Fine Laws Don't Judge Me," the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temmy, and I'm joined by Andy Leonetti. What's
1: up, Laura? Good to be back in the saddle.
0: Yeah, it's nice to have you back. Hopefully, you had a good uh, good break from I, us.
1: I did. I <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed my time not speaking with you or Joe, but <laughs> I did. But I did also miss you.
0: Oh, that's sweet. Well, speaking of Joe, uh, it was yeah. J-
1: wait a minute.
0: Right here today. <laughs> I'm Joe Fabish, yep. also joining in. Perfect. Yep. No other introductions needed. Um, <laughs> obviously, Joe is taking his turn to be off this week. So, we're very excited to welcome Vedahi Mehta, who is a senior editor here at Fine Law, and very excited to have her join us on the show. So, we have a new person to yuck it up with.
2: Oh, yeah. Definitely yuck and not yum. Thank you, Laura and Andy. Uh, <laughs> don't get too excited. I am mostly here for two reasons. Uh, One, to see how many listeners I can alienate with my terrible puns. And two, to raise the ramble to relevant ratio through the roof.
0: I love it. With my constant tangents. I'm so so happy. I'm so happy that someone other than me is ready to do some rambling. So I guess before we dive into our topic for the day, I was wondering if you could tell a little bit about your background and what made you want to join us on the show.
2: Yeah, I'm uh, fresh off the boat. Uh, Used to be fresh off the boat from India, but now I'm fresh (laughs) off the boat from legal practice and uh, super new and super excited. I'm coming from a very small stint in practice, though. Uh, I used to work as an attorney, assistant attorney general, uh, state of Washington. And then I did a appellate court clerkship, Uh, for the state of Oregon. So, you know, government, judiciary, things like that. No firm, no big law, not
0: yet. That's okay. Um, That's perfect experience for what we're talking about today, though. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's why I'm here.
1: When you were an assistant AG, what was your kind of, what was your portfolio of cases?
2: This is going to be super random because it's not really my cup of tea, but they're very, you know, in Washington, they're very division specific. So Mm -hmm. you focus on whatever you're focusing on and not like it's not a grab bag usually. So I was in labor and industries, which uh, sounds kind of dry, but it was a lot (laughs) of uh, workers compensation, OSHA, like state level OSHA. And uh, yeah, just like lots of injuries and uh, lots of uh, deposing orthopedic surgeons, et cetera. Lots of Litigation, though, at at different levels, both at the uh, agency, trial, appellate. It was pretty cool.
0: Okay. Nice. Well, today we are talking about something that may or may not be as sinister as it sounds. Uh, We wanted to talk about the Supreme Court shadow docket. Shadow docket. You beat me to it. And I love that. <laughs> so the shadow docket is the term given to decisions that the Supreme Court makes that are kind of outside of the procedural norm. And we'll we'll get into the details of that a little bit. And So essentially, instead of doing full briefings and oral arguments and issuing signed opinions that are many, many pages long, that often the writers here at Fine Law, we will read and write blogs about. So check those out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Same Shameless (laughs) plug there. These shadow docket decisions are typically a couple of sentences, and they don't indicate which way the individual justices voted. Now, the shadow docket has existed for about as long as the Supreme Court has, but it wasn't until 2015 that Will Bode, a law professor at the University of Chicago... Shout out to my alma mater. Hey, there you go. (laughs) But not
2: my law alma mater.
0: Oh, fair enough. Only undergrad. Undergrad, gotcha. (laughs) So Professor Bode coined the term to describe these cases where the justices are making decisions without what we in the industry call an argument on the merits. And the shadow docket includes many decisions that the Supreme Court makes that we don't really care about, primarily because they're boring. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Um, The term for them is anodyne, which literally means they are unlikely to cause dissent. They're things like decisions that grant parties more time to file their briefs, granting more time for oral arguments. It's all very a lot of it is very procedural stuff that as a public, we don't really care too much about. You will not find those on Laura's blog. No, I will not. <laughs> I will not be writing too much about them on the Fine Law Supreme Court blog. Um, this practice is also used for what we refer to as denying cert, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a couple minutes And in general, that's the Supreme Court deciding not to review a given case. But in rare cases, they might issue an opinion like this in an emergency situation that can't wait for normal procedure. So bottom line, it's a way to help control the Supreme Court's caseload. So you, since you have experience in the judiciary, can you tell the people about how some of this procedural stuff works? Uh, For example, what is cert and what does it mean to deny or grant it? So,
2: yeah, as uh, some of you guys might already be familiar with, uh, Supreme Court reviews decisions from cases below on what we... Uh, lawyers like to abbreviate as cert, but it stands for certiorari. A writ, they issue a writ of certiorari, which just translates from like probably fake Latin because
1: most, <laughs> most of our legalese Please. is like not. I never knew how to pronounce that <laughs> word, so thank you.
2: Look, I'm not saying that we lawyers pronounce our fake Latin correctly because it is a dead oh language. definitely not. We just make up pronunciations. But oh, I you just take said it, said would it, it basically
1: exactly laugh. like the <laughs> Irish actress uh, Saoirse Ronan.
2: Saoirse Ronan, not. To be confused and these with words these <laughs> are spelled <laughs>
1: completely differently. I might add.
2: Yeah, this <laughs> so is not Gaelic. This is fake Latin. Um, and it—if you want to know—it stands for like to be made certain or something. It comes from like "sacerari volumus," like we wish something to be made certain. In case you needed a Legally's nerd moment. <laughs> Anyways, so uh, you know, so that's how the—that's how Scotus reviews cases by issuing this writ uh, after a petition for cert is made by a party wishing for them to review it. So historically, the majority of SCOTUS cases, which have been, you know, in recent history, about 60 to 70 per year that they actually take, that they actually agree to grant this writ of cert to, they the majority of their cases have historically come from what like the, the merits docket. That docket involves the justices. They decide to grant cert after a process that involves substantial briefing from the parties that are petitioning for cert. So substantial briefing below. And then after they grant cert, there's further merits briefing. In many cases, this is not only from the parties, but from outside parties called amici, amicus briefings, you know, friends of the courts that are not actually part of litigation, but maybe they're like an interest group or an expert, a law professor even, and they will add to the briefing. So they add their expert to knowledge. And so there you have two rounds of briefing. Once one, you know, some briefing before certs so granted and then briefing after you got, you got a lot of thorough information on briefing. These normal cases, they also, those justices will hold oral arguments, which of course uh, provides further, it sheds further light on some questions that they might have. They allow the justices to ask questions and clarify points that would be hopefully helpful in making their ruling. And then when the court delivers its opinion, which the opinion itself is substantially fleshed out and includes detailed reasoning for why the court is deciding the way it is, this opinion is also signed by various justices. Um, Some will dissent, some will concur, and there's always a recorded vote. So you know which justices came out. On which side, and mm-hmm. um, the timeline for this is, as you can probably tell, it's relatively slow and somewhat leisurely because there's a lot involved, and you know that timeline allows for input from multiple parties and allows a more thorough deliberation by the justices too. And allows for like a more thorough writing of reasoned, fully fleshed opinions. The timeline is also not only long, but more predictable because, you know, there's, there's a set timeline when the opinions are issued. They're issued on set mm-hmm. days and they're very publicly aired, which is why another reason that they get a lot more press.
0: So that's the normal process. How does that compare with the shadow docket?
2: Yeah, so uh, compare that process with a shadow docket. A shadow docket is, uh, you know, as you said, it's it's a newly coined term. It's just like newfangled slang for what was called the application docket. And in that, uh, the parties who already have a case pending on the merits uh, in a lower court, they're usually seeking like some kind of procedural action, such as, for example, a stay or an injunction. They're seeking SCOTUS to give lower courts pre- procedural order, essentially, and happening while their case on the merits is still being heard or ruled on below. And these uh, types of cases are typically time sensitive and that's one of the reasons why they're being escalated through this expedited process in the first place. But these cases though are only maybe getting like one round of briefing and sometimes less uh, as opposed to, you know, as we said earlier, there's two rounds of briefing at least for uh, the merits cases. And so these shadow dock cases they're not not as well briefed and, and the opinions themselves When they're issued, they're often not accompanied by like any reasoning at all, let alone substantial reasoning. They're often like one or two sentences, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of like a per per curiam opinion. The the opinions don't identify how the justice voted either, which is huge, you know. And so there's less accountability there. Also, the shadow dockets don't follow um, a a set timeline; they can be handed down whenever, and sometimes they're often handed down in the middle of the night. So they're literally as well as figuratively in the shadows. Yeah, and. this, this sort of practice of the shadow docket comes from kind of special jurisdiction that SCOTUS has. Uh, SCOTUS has emergency or extraordinary jurisdiction, but the, historically this has been applied in very few cases. So mm-hmm. again, the vast majority of SCOTUS cases are being are, are review of cases that have come through often through one or often multiple rulings by lower courts. Um, yeah. Um, so they're merit cases. So this emergency extraordinary jurisdiction, it's not constitutionally required or required by any like law statute, but it's just it's usually it's historically it's just been a result of the justice's own preference, and the justices have historically used their preference and discretion uh, to not take so many emergency extraordinary relief cases. There's no you know there's, no one's telling them you you do or don't have to, and so you know again going back to Sir Sherrari, the statutory authority comes from the All Writs Act. Technically, SCOTUS can review a case whether civil or criminal. One once it's reached any federal court of appeal and any party has petitioned for cert. So again, they have um, discretion granting cert to cases at any level once they're in the system. They can also issue writs directly to federal district courts, which are trial courts, instead of um, going through the courts of appeals. Sorry if that's too much information about the process.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's okay. That's what we're here. We're here to just break it all down. And something I wanted to bring up, just to keep in mind the scale of all this, the Supreme Court receives a about 6,000 petitions every year, and they grant about 1% of them. So one interesting thing about this shadow docket, and we'll kind of get into whether or not it should be this way, but the shadow docket is sort of becoming a way that people are sort of trying to skirt that process of having their petition actually granted.
2: Yeah, and another you know thing to remember is that SCOTUS is not supposed to be. I mean, it's not a trial court, right? Right. Um, so they have said themselves in a case called. Adirond Constructors v. Mineta, we have to be mindful that this court is a court of final review, not first review. The court thus declines to reach the merits of the present challenge. That's a quote from that case when they had taken CERT, but then they realized they shouldn't have uh, because the lower court found lack of standing. So this case just re- represents, it reflects the you know principle that even once they grant CERT, they're always obligated to reevaluate if they can actually reach the merits. And if they sh- can't or shouldn't they are obligated to not and say no nope, we can't actually rule on this
0: so before we move on to why we should care about the shadow docket we should probably cover why why is it so important to have limited direct cert
2: yeah so direct cert as like you know what you get in the shadow docket where you're appealing directly to the to the court of appeals without going through this appellate process, as most cases are, it's, there's a lot of benefits go- to going through multiple layers of review by lower courts and courts of appeals. Uh, and one is just that you have multiple rounds of briefing, you have multiple rounds of oral argument, and even rounds of lower court rulings and reasoning um, on all of on which the SCOTUS can base their decision. So essentially, more information is usually better. Right. Mm-hmm. And another big thing is that lower court judges and particularly like trial court judges. So at the federal district court levels, they are creating the fact record. So they're seeing, you know, evidence presented to them and they are necessarily closer to the facts and to the parties. And, and any time an appellate court or SCOTUS, which is also an appellate court, is reviewing this record, they're not seeing it firsthand. So they're just further removed from the facts that can make or break a case.
0: Yeah, I think the problem we're seeing is that some shadow docket decisions have very big impacts, probably more so than was ever intended for those types of decisions. And cases like that have increased in number in the past few years, as well as in controversy. One example of that is a decision from earlier this year that cleared the way for several federal death penalty executions to move forward. And that was after nearly 20 years without the execution of a federal prisoner. And Mm That one was unique because unlike many shadow docket decisions, this one did have some analysis, but it was only from the dissenting justices. The majority Mm -hmm. did a couple sentences granting the government's petition and just moved on. I wrote a blog about it. We can link it in the show notes. But the short version is that the lower courts had put a man's execution on hold because the state where he was convicted had since outlawed the, the death penalty. And oral arguments were scheduled at the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals for January 27th of 2021. But the government didn't want to wait that long. And they essentially asked the Supreme Court to reverse the lower court without any briefings or arguments. And again, this is the problem with the shadow docket. For reasons that we don't know, the majority said, okay and provided no public opinion on the matter. And this defendant was dead just a few hours later. And so it's yeah, it's something it's both interesting and a little bit alarming, how big of an impact some of these shadow docket cases can have. Yeah, and that's just one example of quite a number
2: of execution cases mm-hmm. that have, you know, risen to the shadow docket uh, post 2020 when the administration decided to take a bunch of execution cases. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a recent trend, but that's just one example of many cases that have gone to SCOTUS on this way and been ruled this way.
0: Yeah. And there were also quite a few actions taken relating to COVID-19 where there were decisions to block local and state restrictions on, for example, indoor religious services like we saw in Gateway City Church versus Newsom. And again, that was a shadow docket decision, and the Supreme Court said, okay, go ahead.
1: Just in June, the court decided, we actually, it it said five to four, but we didn't actually know who was in the majority on the court upholding the CDC's eviction moratorium, only for the fact that Justice Kavanaugh wrote about a two-paragraph statement, basically saying that if if the government tried to extend this again without congressional approval the court would most likely shoot it down which i guess you kind of have to take him at his word on that because there's because there's there's no other guidance in that decision
0: yeah yeah well and that's that's part of the problem with these is that since there is no signed opinion and there's no analysis the lower courts and congress as you're alluding to they don't have anything to work from (laughs) and and there's a Pretty significant argument to be made that we want this to be like math class. We want the Supreme Court to show their work.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, to that point, what I think a, a lot of people who don't practice law possibly don't realize is that so much law is being made from these uh, appeals opinions. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most important part of any opinion is often not the holding, which is like the answer to the math problem in in math class, but it's actually showing their work, which is in this case, the reasoning. And so, yeah, so the holding often is not important for future litigants to learn from. The reasoning, is essential to nuanced lawmaking and for providing guidance to both lower courts and to litigating parties in future cases. If we don't, if we just have like one or two sentences telling us what the outcome is without an explanation, we don't know why the Supreme Court ruled the way it did. And that's not very helpful.
1: I will say as a non-lawyer, I do not get as big of a charge as you dorks do out of, out of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these these I, these ivory tower justices seeing how seeing oh. seeing how many quotes from Hamilton they can sneak into their <laughs> sneak into their opinions. And <laughs> I kind of like a one sentence ruling. Actually, it,
2: <laughs> you would because you guys were in TLDR culture these days. Can't read the full yeah. thing.
1: Although you should,
0: um Andy, you should read Joe's blog on not including literary references in um, judicial It also my, my, (laughs) my,
1: you know, my life goal of being the world's first and best benevolent dictator. This, it does, it speaks, it speaks to me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I, yeah, I understand that very few people and two of them are probably on this podcast. Very few people want to read a 60 page Supreme Court opinion. And I understand that, but that's what the internet's for. Oh, there's probably, Uh, yeah, some... (laughs) Room between two sentences and 60 pages. Right. Right.
1: <laughs> there might be. There might be.
0: What does everybody think? What are other issues with the Shadow Docket? So one, you know, kind of recent
2: issue, recent-ish in the Trump administration, a lot of people have been criticizing, people on both sides of the, uh, the political spectrum have been criticizing the more um, you know, the more frequent use of the shadow docket recently. Mm-hmm. Um, one big thing is, you know, there's a there's a bias that the SCOTUS displays when they take cases with the federal government so for example in Trump's administration his first
0: oh pop quiz time oh no (laughs) you think you can just come in here in your first episode and quiz me I'm just kidding go ahead this is why I will not be invited (laughs)
2: back for sure I gotta I gotta make use of my one and only time on this podcast because I will not be invited back
1: exactly Uh,
2: (laughs) does Noel Francisco mean anything
0: to you uh Nope, I have no, I have no idea no. who that is.
1: All I can think of is Elf, where Buddy the Elf is sitting there <laughs> reading, and he's going Francisco, Francisco, Francisco. <laughs> That's it. So no.
2: Well, what about uh, William Barr, Jeff yeah. Sessions? Do those yeah, me mean anything to you? Okay, so
1: still no, still no. Shut up, Come on, Andy. Get <laughs> yeah, with the
2: times. So people have heard of, uh, you know, people have heard of Jeff Sessions, uh, Will Barr, but uh, who are the Attorney Generals? We don't really talk in the media a lot about the Solicitor General. Some people are like, what's the difference? And that is a great question. <laughs> um but uh you know uh, trump's uh solicitor generals are largely in charge of um, petitioning for these sort of shadow docket cases and have been very active in doing so and have kept out of the news because I guess no one they're not as their personal lives are maybe not as spicy <laughs> as the attorney generals so for example Noel Francisco um filed over 21 stays in less than three years um and he kept that up until he hit a wall specifically Jeff wall Ooh. (laughs) Oh, Oh, hey, man! Come on. (laughs) <laughs> who is uh, an, another U Chicago alum. What is the deal with all of my... Uh, I don't uh, know. <laughs> um, everyone apparently went to my school that's involved in the shadow docket. But yeah, so in, in the Trump administration, there were 41 applications in a one four-year term. Mm-hmm. Versus, compared to both Bush and Obama's 16 years combined, there were only eight applications. Wow. And in those 41 applications from the Trump administration 36 I think were her like so actually taken up by the Supreme Court. So yeah. um yeah, the shadow docket has risen in cases whereas the merits docket has actually shrunk a little bit into the 50s. And so, you know, and this this doesn't seem to be a trend that's necessarily directly pandemic-related because it predated the pandemic. And the success rate for Trump's solicitor generals getting taken up by the Supreme Court in these sort of shadow docket petitions, uh, it's not great overall. The These petitions under Trump have not fared as well as under Obama, but the effect is definitely not negligible because, you know... Francisco or whoever the Solicitor General is, they're still getting what they want, i.e. they're leaving challenged federal regulations in place or halting discovery or slowing the process of litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the result, even if SCOTUS doesn't decide to take it up or give them a favorable outcome, it's often they're, they're getting uh, w- what they want in terms of like leaving challenged rulings in place or... Or the other way around.
1: Are you saying that the (laughs) Supreme Court is not immune from ideology?
2: Yeah, that's you know, that's another that's another issue because the Supreme Court is supposed to be not only nonpartisan, and so they should not be favoring a particular administration who isn't necessarily partisan, they're also supposed to practice the separation of powers and not give, you know, favor to the executive branch.
1: Yeah, and this does kind of set like with all things with the expanding powers of the executive branch that kind of stems from Congress abdicating a lot of its job
0: <laughs> i knew you were gonna bring up the world's greatest <laughs> deliberative body i mean Ooh.
1: it's <laughs> these things it's 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 usually typically hard we find that it's hard to unwind a lot of these things mm-hmm. once it's happened and when you had a president who was as was as dgaf as the prior <laughs> president was about about existing norms and the way things work and whatever
2: And to your point about Congress uh, getting involved, like there has been a lot of debate recently about how much Congress can dictate what SCOTUS has to do. Like whether or not Congress can say you have to have a majority vote of this number or a supermajority of this number, or whether Congress can even say, like, no, you have to issue a written opinion uh, for this. There's, you know, some people think Congress can make those rules and just haven't. Some people think they don't have that power according to the Constitution.
1: There was a. Hearing actually on the shadow docket this year in the uh, House Judiciary Committee mm-hmm. sub uh, court subcommittee yep. that actually showed a decent amount of bipartisan alarm for this problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Judiciary co- the Judiciary Committee is is typically one of the more partisan committees on the Hill, <laughs> and so this was um, it was interesting to see. Even you even had uh, Louis Gohmert. Of Texas, a former judge, a former judge, but also he of the uh, he was probably one of the more pro-Trump lawmakers, and um, he said he said I am a fan of judges and justices making clear who is making decisions. I think Congress does have authority to require such a thing. Whether they would actually exercise that authority, that that gets into more of whether they would actually have the intestinal fortitude to undertake such a fight. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it would be an uphill battle.
1: Yeah, Daryl Issa of California, the ranking, the Republican ranking member of that subcommittee, kind of proposed a first, a first uh, solution of uh, basically sending a stern letter <laughs> to to the Supreme <laughs> Court, basically wanting to send a bipartisan letter from the subcommittee seeking the votes of each justice and other information about several recent shadow docket decisions. And so one obvious outcome of that could be that you could have the nine justices band together and just say, well, they were all unanimous.
2: Yeah. So we, as we mentioned, this shows, this could show a favoritism towards Both the federal government in violation of separation of powers and also uh, towards a specific political party, whoever's in charge. And the Solicitor General, at least under Trump, has not always won, as I said, but the justices have also not called him out. They haven't called the executive branch, they haven't called the administration out on the frequency of this unprecedented frequency of the filings uh, into the shadow docket. So even if it's denying his specific request, it's not like chiding him publicly or otherwise. Uh, And, Uh you know, the, the Solicitor General, he's even when he's lost with prejudice in when when they've taken up these cases in the shadow docket, there's a lot of justice dissenting. Um, so there's just no public comment from the court on at how he/slash the Trump administration has acted or whether it's inappropriate,
1: yeah. And even as something as I mean, it was definitely blown out of proportion by the media because everyone, every, court experts and such, back in December and January were saying when. Um, The Texas attorney general filed that last second harebrained emergency (laughs) appeal to the court to essentially to essentially stop the election in its certification in its tracks. And they they quickly denied cert was what was happening in that case. But they also didn't say why. and,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And and to three people like us, you say, well, we we denied it because it was stupid. Right and and this and <laughs> right. and we, this is not in our purview. But mm-hmm. to a large, clearly a large portion of the country would have actually probably appreciated some some written guidance there, especially from yeah. judges who I guess they had been led to believe over the last few years were automatically required to do this for them.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a great point. We often don't know why cert's denied when it's denied. There's no reasoning for it. And um, a lot of people though in the cases of, of, of when the Supreme Court does take or decides not to take a shadow docket type petition, we think that the justices are essentially predicting when to intervene based on their subjective guess, that further development mm-hmm of the record in a particular case mm-hmm. isn't going to be helpful. So, you know, without having all this information, it seems that they're cherry picking like, okay, this case is either important enough, time sensitive enough, or we feel like we have enough information that's not going to change our outcome, therefore we will take that. But that's that's very problematic because it goes to a lot of speculation on the justice's part. And, mm-hmm. you know, an- another big issue, you know, as I might have alluded to earlier, the Supreme Court, not only has the federal government been petitioning for a lot of these shadow docket, petition, uh, shadow docket cases to be taken up, but a lot of them have been taken up from the federal government um, in, out of proportion to the ones that have been taken up from people outside the government. So the, this tilts, I mean, the court has such limited resources. This practice is tilting the court's limited resources to a very narrow class of dispute, being the ones in which the federal government is interested in and not the ones that the people are necessarily interested in.
1: I would like to know, I have a question about dissents, because as the ideological balance of the court shifted, a lot of people were left to just kind of get these pyrrhic victories from whatever Justice Ginsburg wrote um, and in dissent. And that is clearly, I think, that role is now shifting to Justice Sotomayor. <laughs> um, For sure. Pretty, oh, yeah. pretty obviously. She's filling the, the spark plug role, I think, quite admirably. So in these Shadow Docket rulings, what is what is stopping, say, a Justice Sotomayor from someone who is clearly kind of not who's pretty obviously not a fan of the death penalty, um, what, is, what is stopping her? Broad- broadcasting her, yeah, her...
2: Oh, nothing's stopping them, and, and they're not being stopped, uh, especially recently. So the dissents are, as you guys have alluded to, one of the areas in which we can find some semblance of what was on the judge's mind in issuing these rulings. Mm-hmm. So let's compare some numbers in those small eight applications that, between Bush and Obama... Only one resulted in, in a dissent. Whereas out of the 36 ones heard during Trump, 27 of them resulted in dissenting opinions. So they're definitely practicing their dissents, but it also, this practice, this like rise in dissents um, in proportion to the shadow docket petitions, it demonstrates. The justices are even more polarized recently amongst themselves. It seems to demonstrate that there's not a great uh, consensus to begin with because we have so many dissents more and more lately.
1: As we were alluding to earlier, it is funny that as we've seen people in Congress be alarmed about this, the, the best solution so far they can come up with is an angry an angry letter <laughs> to the court. Yeah. It's, that's, there, is, there is growing uh, arguments in the progressive legal activist sphere to, for Congress to take advantage of its powers enumerated in the Constitution to uh, strip, juris, it's called, the concept is known as jurisdiction stripping, that exists in uh, two spots in the Constitution, essentially. Uh, it's Article 3, Section 1 gives Congress discretion over whether to create the lower the lower courts, district courts, appellate courts, which which Congress has used to create to create district and appellate courts, And then Article three, Section two, Clause two empowers Congress to make exceptions to the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction, which is actually a pretty broad power, because what the what the Constitution lists as the original jurisdiction for the Supreme Court is 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 pretty narrow. Uh, it's matters of ambassadors and ministers and, disp- yeah. <laughs> and disputes, disputes where where a state is a party, and so you could have a scenario where what people are wanting now it kind of it coincides with uh, efforts to end the filibuster in the Senate. Say you end the filibuster, you pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and within that law, you basically include a provision. That would limit judicial review.
2: Yeah, the CODIS's original jurisdiction is pretty limited. In which cases they can hear, as you know, uh, on original matters. But their appellate jurisdiction is super broad. They can
0: mm-hmm. ha-
2: they can exercise appellate jurisdiction, which is what this is. This re- review of cert, whether it's on the merits or whether it's from the shadow docket, that's they can hear that on almost any case that involves a constitutional point or federal law.
1: And uh, and this this power has not really been used all that much it's funny that we were talking about the death penalty because the only time in recent memory really where congress has instituted some form of jurisdiction stripping in the lawmaking process is to basically limit the right limit the appellate rights of inmates or people accused of crossing the border illegally it has Limit, what 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 activists have said it's limited their habeas habeas rights and mm-hmm. beyond, beyond beyond that congress hasn't shown much of an appetite to to weigh in on that stuff which is always but also what i want to know then as i'm reading about this is say congress were to do try to pick a fight essentially with the Supreme Court, and then this case ended up in the Supreme Court. <laughs> what? <How do we, laughs>
0: Therein lies the question, my friend. Th-
1: th- this got that got my that got my mind kind of that, that got your got, mind blown. That got my, yeah, my <laughs> mind blown.
0: I'm pretty optimistic
2: that this is going to be less of an issue in the Biden administration. All all these like crazy, like the frequency of petitions uh, into the shadow docket. So it might not be, it might be a moot point. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of, there's been a lot more talk about this recently and a lot more criticism publicly about the shadow docket. So that will also, I think, shape it. So Congress might not have to act in a way other than writing an angry letter, (laughs) which is funny enough, exactly what a dissent is. And that's also been the dissenting justices solution, writing angry letters.
0: And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonneuters.com.
1: You planned out some pithy one-liners, didn't you?
2: Hey, man, you got to edit that out. Joe, Laura, I'm looking at you to edit that out. I need more credit than that. Oh,
0: I I always have a few jokes written out, but the the audience will never know which ones I wrote and which ones are off the cuff. (laughs)